Okay. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's read our text tonight. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father God, help us this evening. God, let your Spirit shine a light on each and every one of us, Father, that you would break through the walls and barriers within us, God, that we would open ourselves up, Father, to what you have for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So many times people read this text and they wonder, why did he call Jesus the Word? Why, did he, why didn't he just say Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Messiah or, or, or even the Son of God. Why, didn't, why did he say the Word? The only other time that anything like this is quote, uh, close to being said is when Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And then the bread of life is also oftentimes referred to as the Bible, the Word of God. So why did he call him the Word and what is he trying to do here? Well, our word, our word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to us, we understand what that means if we're saved. But our word, which is the gospel, needs to become the word to the world. The word to our world needs to make sense to the world. And if that didn't make any sense, that's okay. So the year is 100 A.D. John is one of the last living apostles out of the 12. John was living in Ephesus at the time, which is a Greek nation, and he's delivering the gospel to the Greeks when he wrote his account of the life of Jesus, known as the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of the last books of the Bible to be written, John wrote it when he was advanced in age, towards the end of his life, decades after Jesus had ascended into heaven. You see, he was ministering to the Greeks. And if you aren't familiar with cultural history, Greeks were not Jews. Now that might be obvious, but the culture between Greeks and Jews were actually very, very different. They did not understand each other. They did not really coexist very much. So a lot of the way they talked, a lot of the way they acted, the way, a lot of the way they carried themselves was very different from one another. And John was also Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Much of the Old Testament history was Jewish. The ideology of Scripture was predominantly Jewish, geared towards the nation of Israel. But now the gospel has gone out beyond Israel into the Greek uh, territory. And John is trying to figure out, how can I portray the gospel to the Greeks? The gospel, as the book of Romans says, came first to the Jews and then to the Greeks or Gentiles. History and all the prophecies that you read about in the Old Testament came to the Jewish people mostly. So the Greeks just didn't really relate 
the way they talked, the way they understood. They didn't know much about the history of the Israel nation, the Israel church, and the beliefs and the God in whom they are telling them about. But Greek is beginning, Greece is beginning to embrace the gospel. The gospel is spreading like wildfire in this nation. And John's goal in writing the gospel of John was to bridge the gap between Jewish thought and Greek thought to portray the value and prominence of the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Greek people. So in other words, he was trying to take an idea that made sense to him and make it make sense to somebody far different than him. And his idea was based off of one word, which was word. Or in the Greek, which is logos. He called the word, I'm sorry, he called Jesus the word, which in Greek is logos, which literally means the word. No fancy translations there, but it was a word to, de to generally describe an embodying idea or a divine thought or speech. So it was a prominent word. It was a valuable word. Now, how does this help Jesus make sense to the Greeks? While also bridging the gap from Jewish thoughts to Greek thoughts. Well, instead of putting it into my own words, I'll read to you what uh, the commentary of John Corson says. He explains it excellently. He says this, the Greeks had developed a philosophy articulated by Plato and others that was built upon the assumption that logos, the word, was a foundation was the foundation of everything on earth. The earth, Plato said, was simply a shadow of the reality of logos that existed somewhere in the heavens. The Jews took the Greek concept of logos one step further, whereas Plato said behind everything there is a perfect thought, which is Lagos, the Jews said that behind the thought there must be a thinker. We don't see a perfect, uh, we don't see perfection Lagos here on earth, said the Greeks, but it must exist somewhere. And the Jews would say yes, and if it, and if it were a true perfect thought, which is Lagos, there must be a true perfect thinker who is God. So in short, the Greeks believed that this idea of logos, or the word, the ideal world, the ideal circumstances existed somewhere, but it wasn't here. We were just a shadow of the, of the perfect, perfect place to be, the perfect idea, the perfect thought, and we were a flawed idea of that thought. Jewish culture piggybacked on that idea saying that must be, if that's true, then there must be a thinker of these perfect thoughts, and that is God, Elohim. Are we tracking? A little bit of church history. I hope you guys find this fascinating, because I do. John is, comes on the scene here. So now that you understand the ideology behind these two nations, John enters the scene with the idea of, I want to write something that can articulate the gospel to these foreign people. John, as I said, is living in Greece at the time and wants to effectively minister to these people. And so he begins to write his account of the life of Jesus Christ. And he opens it up this way, verses 1 and 2 from our text. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, Jesus Christ. And the Word 
was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now John did two powerful things in this two sentences. He deliberately called Jesus Christ God and he also called Jesus Christ the ultimate authority and deity that was behind a popular Greek theology and compelling them to change their way of thinking and turn to Jesus. So in other words, he's saying, you have this incomplete theology, this incomplete idea of what perfection is, and now I'm going to show you the man behind what you're looking for. Ultimately, what he did is the same thing that we need to do, is that we need to portray the gospel to people in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can grasp and relate to. All of that to get to that point. That we can be like John and be willing to go the extra mile to look at somebody who doesn't look like us, to talk to somebody who doesn't sound like us, to think with somebody who doesn't think like us and think, how can I get them to understand the gospel the way that I do? Jesus is the word, a.k.a. the solution to the world, but the world doesn't know it yet. Now, if you're here this evening and you're saved, which I pray that you are, you know that Jesus has saved you. Praise God for that. You know your story. You know how you came into salvation. You know what God has done for you since then. You have your testimony. You know who the Bible says that Jesus is. And at some point in your life, the Word became the Word to your life. The Word of God, the Word who Jesus Christ is, became a reality to you. And you realized the ideas of everything that you needed, everything that you pursued, everything that your soul cried out for was found in the Word, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 from our text says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The need for Jesus in your life became a prevailing reality in your life at some point or another when you understood that you were a broken, downright, dirty, desperate sinner that needed Jesus Christ. And then verses 4 through 5 came to life that Jesus Christ was the light that you needed in the darkness that you were living in, and it was something that could overcome the darkness that surrounded you. You realized you were wrecked. And only Jesus could save your ship. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 describes man in this state. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, the people that John was surrounded with in this day and age were living this way. The Greeks were living this way. Each one of you in this place either once lived this way or you are living this way. Many people around us in the world are living this way, and it's the reality of their spiritual state being dead in their trespasses and sins. 
Verse 2 describes this state as following the course of the world, going with the flow, just believing whatever the media or social media or influencers or whoever tells you and just going the way that they want to go. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's a fancy name for Satan. And he runs much of those things that I just described. And verse 3 says, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were children of wrath. This describes us before Jesus Christ. This is not good. (laughs) If we're saved tonight, we once realize that that is the state of how we were living and it was not good. But this is what we must portray to the world, that they must come to this same conclusion, this same understanding that we once came to. There's a story of a young man who challenged a preacher one day. And he said, you say that unsaved people carry a great weight of sin. But frankly, I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? 10 pounds, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, 100? The preacher thought for a moment and then replied, if you laid a 400-pound weight on the chest of a dead corpse, would he feel the load? The young man replied, of course not. It's dead. The preacher responded, The person who does not know Christ is equally dead. Though the load is great, he feels none of it. Without Christ, we are crushed by the weight of our sin, but we might not even notice it. Without Christ, the world is being crushed by the weight of their sin, and they don't even notice it. We are weighed down, crushed by something, Many times it's disguised in things that we like to call depression or anxiety or, or addiction or relationship issues or emotional issues or what have you. But the corpse of the world has us convinced that these issues are not related to the way we act, to our sin, that there are other problems and we must seek a solution. We must find a problem within the world. But like John, maybe you're sitting in your life where you sit right now. You're looking around at the people here. You're looking at the world that you live in, the the city that you commute through every day, the workplace that you go to, the school that you go to, the family that you live with, or what have you. And they're full of lost souls. They're dead in their sin everywhere. And you're wondering, how can I portray the gospel that saved me to this person when we're so different? even within your own family. This is a challenge. This is a difficult thing to encounter. Not everybody thinks like you do. Not everybody talks like you do. Not everybody sees things the way you do. So how can we get them to see Jesus the way that we do? How can we share Jesus to the world in a way that makes sense to the world? We must allow Jesus to redefine their word. John made Jesus relevant to the Greeks in a big way. He said, the word, the logos, the ideas that you have, here's the solution. The thoughts that you have, here's the answers. He takes their own theology, which was incomplete at best, in their own search for truth and answers, and he offers them the solution in the form of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Let's read it one last time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
When a Greek would read this, he knows exactly what John is trying to say. John makes this claim, and it is a bold claim, and then continues through the rest of the Gospel of John to state his case. The entire book of the Gospel of John is John's declaration to the world beyond the, Greek, beyond the Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and he is the solution to your questions. John is attempting to reach a group of people that he is living around but not ultimately familiar with. So how can we apply John's technique to our life? How can we reach a soul that we can't relate to the same way that John did? The simple basis of what John did is he took something that was important to them, something that they pursued, something that they constantly were thinking about, trying to understand, trying to find knowledge, trying to find security and understanding and fulfillment and belonging, and he points them to Jesus as the answer. We have to show people that Jesus is not a solution. Jesus is the solution. There is no other option. There is no other logos. There is no other perfect idea other than Christ himself. You see, all that the world seeks, no matter what it is, jobs, career, relationships, whether it's moral or immoral, whether it's high road or, or low road or what have you, at the basis of it all, we're all seeking basic things. The rest of Ephesians chapter 2, I read a little bit earlier, covers a lot of these basic things. Chapter, uh, verse 12 tells us that the world is seeking security and hope. Verse 12 says, Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Paul presents some issues here. To the sinner, to the lost soul, he says, you were strangers of the covenant of promise. Showing that in the world we lack the security that only God can bring. I'm talking about eternal security. Having no hope. Having no hope without God in the world. How many here want hope? Everybody wants hope. The world wants hope. They, you, you see all these oh, hope for humanity restored memes and stuff like that. They want to see good things happen. They want to see something that makes them feel a certain way. They need hope. Humans drive off of hope. You don't go into an endeavor without hope that you will succeed. You don't go into a relationship without hope that it will materialize into something. You don't show up to an event without hope that you want to are going to be glad you came humans are agents of hope looking for things to have hope in searching for something to place their hope within something worthwhile something worth building and that hope is found in God but without God we have no hope ultimately we may find temporary things that make us feel good for a little while but eventually they fail eventually they fall away but our our, the scripture says that we find hope in God, not in the world. The world is seeking peace. Verses 13 through 16 in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and uh, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He is describing a civil war within us. Without Christ, it is a constant battle of our flesh versus our spirit. Our flesh cries out for what our flesh cries out for. Food, lust, immorality, pleasures, whatever it is. And our spirit cries out for God. Our spirit cries out for peace in God. And it's this constant battle within us. And this text tells us that if you want that battle to stop, if you want peace within yourself, you need the blood of Jesus Christ. The world is seeking peace. And we can talk about how we want world peace. We just wish that that this you know, demographic would get along with this demographic that, that, you know, blacks and whites could get along or Hispanics and Asians or boomers and millennials or whatever type of divide you want to draw up. There's plenty of them and we can find them everywhere. But ultimately, the scriptures tell us that the peace that we need is peace within us. And it is only found through the blood of Jesus Christ. The world is seeking knowledge and understanding. Verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is acknowledging that through Jesus Christ we have the Holy Spirit who can bring us into the presence of God. How many know that the presence of God, God's Spirit and the Word of God is what brings us knowledge and understanding? Nothing brings this to us better than the Bible, better than God and His Spirit. You can go to the library and you can read every textbook. You can get your doctorates and masters and double majors and all of that stuff, and you will never have the knowledge and understanding that God can bring when it comes to spiritual matters especially. The Holy Spirit, through Christ, we have access to the Father who is the creator of knowledge. The world is seeking fulfillment. The world wants to feel like it belongs somewhere. The world is seeking relationships. Verses 11, uh, sorry, 19 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit. We find a sense of belonging through God in the church and with God. Verse 19 says we can go from strangers, outcasts, to fellow citizens, part of a sainthood that can only be found in the body of Christ. Family members, one another. Look around. If you're saved in this place, we are family members. We are children of the Most High God. The Bible says that when you become saved, you are a saint. That's right. We're not Catholics here. We are all saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in the glory of our Heavenly Father. 
children of God together, belonging in the body of Christ. We have a place that God wants us. We have a spot that God wants us. We have a community that God wants us within. The body of Christ, the church, is so valuable. Verse 20 says, as Christ, as the cornerstone, he's the center of our family. He is the head of this family. We come together and we follow Christ. In this church, the leader of this church, it's not me, it's Jesus Christ. I answer to him and my pastor. 21 through 22 speaks of unity, togetherness as the body of Christ, and most importantly, belonging to God and dwelling with God. This text deals with some very real issues that the people in the world are looking for. They want peace. They want knowledge. They seek understanding. They desire fulfillment. They want to feel like they belong somewhere. They want to have meaningful relationships and feel that they have a purpose and experience unity. And the only place that can be found is in the house of God, with God, following Jesus Christ. Everyone seeks these things. Don't tell me they don't. Everyone who says that they don't is a liar. I'll just say it right now. Maybe they've grown numb to the seeking of those things. They've been let down so many times by the world that they say they don't want it, but they really do want it. It's deep within each and every one of us. The desires deep within us need these things. And what we pursue in the world is what we think is our answer to finding the peace or the knowledge or the understanding, fulfillment, belonging, relationships, purpose and unity or so much more the things that only jesus can bring the world is seeking within the world everyone seeks these things they are trying to find it in the world they're trying to find it within themselves on their own power or within an organization or within an ideology or within a thought which is what the Greeks were doing, logos. They had this idea, but they weren't sure how to materialize it, how to achieve it. And Paul said all of those, or sorry, John said all of those things you're looking for, peace, knowledge, understanding, fulfillment, all of those things are, that you think are in the logos, that you think are in the word, are actually found in the word, Jesus Christ. The logos that you think is the answer is actually an incomplete answer. Now, here's the answer sheet. Our nature is to seek these things, but the reality is that Christ is the only solution. God created our nature to desire what only Christ can offer. And we must make that reality real to the world. We must make it make sense to the world. So we look at the people around us. Look at the people you work with. Look at the people you go to school with. Look at the people you call family, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, whoever it is. What is their life fixated on? What are they driving towards? What are they seeking? And what's the basis of it? Whatever that is, you take that reality and you show them Jesus. They're seeking security through their employment, and you have to make them realize the 401k isn't the word. Jesus is the word. You want security on this earth, but you need security in eternity. Jesus is the answer to whatever area that somebody is seeking so desperately. So we must show them. We can't look at it through, through our eyes, but look at it through what they are seeking and tell them what you are seeking is not found 
in X, Y, and Z. It's found in the Gospels. It's found in the blood of Jesus Christ. These things that the world is seeking, they only find temporary solutions, counterfeit options, illegitimate replacements for the eternal word, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 14, verse 27. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Later on in John 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus understands that this peace, this confidence, this boldness, people are seeking it in the world, and he's telling them, you ain't going to find it there. I have it, and I have it for you. John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes to the Greeks, But all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To have peace in the world of tribulations, to have heart in a world covered in fear, to call on Jesus and belong eternally to his family to belong to God, to become one with Him and the body of Christ, to be belonging in His will, to have fulfillment. Jesus has a purpose for each and every one of us. He has a destiny and a calling for each and every one of us. And I, for one, get up every day because I know that Jesus has something for me to do today. If I got up for me, I'd stay in bed. To be a child of God. To be a child of the Most High God, nothing more can bring better peace, better knowledge, better understanding, better belonging, better purpose to know that my Father is the God who created it all, including myself. Throughout the Bible, in the Gospels, the New Testament and Old Testament prophecies, Jesus is called many different names. He's called many different things, and I want to share just some of them with you guys. He is called the Almighty One because we are weak. He is called the Advocate because life will accuse us. He's called the Bread of Life because our souls are starving. He's called the Deliverer from our sin and persecutions. He's called the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the I Am, Emmanuel, who is God with us, the King of Kings, the Light of the World because we need to see in dark times. The Mighty One when we are weak, the one who sets us free when we are prisoners of our sin, our hope, because we are hopeless without him, our redeemer for when we feel worthless, our rock even when we are shaky, supreme creator over all, resurrection and the life, the door, the way for when we are lost, the true vine, the victorious one, even when we feel defeated. Wonderful Counselor, especially when we are grappling with the battles within our minds. Everlasting Father, even to the fatherless. Mighty God, especially when we are weak. Prince of Peace through the tumultuous times. The Word, the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who we need to portray to the world. That's who we need to realize who we serve. Why are there so many names for Jesus? Because his children have many needs. 
And he is the solution to all of them. And we must show that to the world. Can I have every head bowed and every eyes closed tonight?